0: Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I am talking with Liz Fossleen. She's the co-author of the book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. And this book is incredible to me because it talks about... The idea that emotions aren't allowed to be in the workplace, or when they are, they're often looked at as irrational, or abnormal, or a weakness, or negative, and in this conversation, we talk about being able to forget unemotional decisions, because there really aren't any, and using emotion and even leaning into emotion using it talking about it being aware of it not trying to squelch it or you know neuter part of ourselves because we're human beings we have emotions we don't have just thoughts we have feelings as well those feelings often equally as valid as thoughts but aren't treated that way especially in the workplace this is a very fun conversation i think you're going to get a lot out of this so i'll just get out of the way and say enjoy this conversation with liz Fosline. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome Liz Fosslien. Liz, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. Really excited to be on this podcast.
0: I said this in uh, pre-conversation. I get so many books, (laughs) people wanting to be on the show. And so I get to be really picky because there's a never-ending supply. And... This was one of the ones that I thought, okay, this is interesting. I like this. I've worked in a cubicle. I've worked in different <laughs> offices. I, this, this resonates with me, especially now with like some of the, the remote working stuff that I lead a team that's remote and I'm part of a larger management team that's remote. The book is called No Hard Feelings, the secret power of embracing emotions at work. And you co-wrote this. Why has nobody written a book on this yet? And what made you decide to do it?
1: Emotion at work is something that people have written about here and there, um, but it's usually within the context of leadership. And when we approach this problem, emotions, we're all emotional creatures, regardless of circumstance. And it's not just when you become a manager that emotions become important. And it's also if that's the only time that you're suddenly taught about emotions, that means that once you ascend to a leadership position, you're suddenly for the first month or maybe even six months or maybe even forever, if there's not like a real training program at your organization, you're you're just completely incapable and undereducated in the super crucial part of leadership, but also of all of work. Um, so we really wanted to broaden the conversation around emotion at work. And then the other thing is, I think so many... And I, I personally operated under this assumption as well, which is that emotion is your enemy in the workplace and you need to suppress it and like wrangle it into submission. And that's also not true. Um, there are definitely emotions that are not helpful at work, but there are emotions that give you really valuable signals. So we also wanted to start treating this topic with more affection, um, as opposed to being like how to manage your emotions, how to like, stop yourself from feeling anything, (laughs) um, which I think is the thrust of a lot of things. And then why this interests me personally is that after I graduated from college, I got kind of the job that I thought I always wanted, which was on a really clear career path. And, uh, you know, I put on a suit, I went into a big building and I was on a big, like on a high floor and just felt really self-important. And then after about two years, I just completely burnt out. I found the work, it wasn't personally meaningful, Um, there wasn't really any creativity in it. And at the time I didn't even realize that those things were really important to me. And so it was the first time in my life that I had to confront like, I'm actually feeling physically sick because of things that I'm feeling and I just can't ignore that anymore. And then when I started thinking about like, what do I wanna do next with my life? This really straight and narrow career path was gone. And so I think in that situation, you really have to do a lot of reflection about, like, what went wrong in this previous job? Like, what was it about the job that I didn't love? And then what could I have done better to, like, actually try and create some kind of work-life balance or not be so anxious about everything? Um, And then, like, what do I want out of my next position? And so I think those questions inevitably, they focus a lot on, like, what you value. And and so, so much of that is what you feel.
0: Yeah, it feels like oh – gosh, I'm, I'm even using those phrases now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to me, it has always felt like emotion is just something that when you walk into the door of your workplace, you've got to kind of hang it up with your coat and your hat when you sit down into your cubicle or whatever office it is you have. Because you can be friendly, and you should get along, and you should work well together, but that's about the extent of what we hear as far as emotions go. In that com and it, it's it 's almost like being neutered it 's like that component of ourselves we 're being told don 't even acknowledge it exists, and yet it 's like oh gosh I, I you know I could come up with some really stupid metaphors here and i 'm not <laughs> and i 'm not going to um but it is like we 're handicapping ourselves in a sense or burying stuff that uh could be helpful but is also causing like an undercurrent of problems that we 're not even able to deal with because we're not acknowledging that emotions exist.
1: Yeah, completely. And I think also when everyone kind of wears this, I'm a, I'm a robot mask, it makes people feel really isolated. So many of the people that we've talked to, both interviewed for the book and then just on a personal level, they have questions that everyone has, but they think that they're the only ones experiencing those things. Um, and so I think a lot of the book is just making it more public, that like everyone has emotional leads and it's actually biologically impossible not to have an emotion. <laughs> so the <laughs> idea that we like don't feel anything at work is ridiculous and therefore harmful. Um, and I think also it it, it prevents us from taking even what might be normally perceived as negative emotions and seeing the value within those. Like one of my favorite examples is envy. envy um, I think jealousy is something that is kind of stigmatized and it is like you shouldn't, obviously you shouldn't let your jealous feelings turn into bitterness or, you know, change the way you act towards someone, but they contain really valuable signals about what's important to you. So if I'm envious of someone who, you know, for example, like has a cartoon published in the New Yorker, I think that's an important signal that for me, that's something that I want. And like how then I can start thinking through, well, how can I get there? Um, so if you never allow yourself to acknowledge that you feel envy, you're also cutting off, maybe a really important signal about where you want to be and and what you value.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, I think you're, you're hitting on something that was kind of eye opening to me as I read the book was this, this idea that uh, again when people talk about someone being emotional that's a weakness when it's called out like that it's it's that you're it's that you're going down a road that's overreacting but what you're talking about in this book is emotions add this other almost superpower awareness or self-awareness that allows you to function at a higher level
1: yeah i, I want to talk to about the the difference between being emotional and then i think there's it's one thing to feel and there's another thing to become a feelings fire hose. And so we're really not endorsing in this book that if you have a feeling in the office or even in your personal life, you should immediately act on it. You should immediately talk to everyone about it. Um, It's more just letting yourself have those feelings and sitting with them a little bit so that you can figure out what's useful within this feeling, what's not, and how do I kind of you know, let what's not go and how do I then turn what's useful into an action that helps me be more successful? Um, a great example. I do this in my personal life too, which is my partner and I, when we had bad days in the beginning of our relationship, which was also before I started doing all the research for this book, we would, I think that would affect how we interacted with each other. And then we would get into these like grump spirals, where I would be grumpy and then kind of take it out on him. And then he would react in a grumpy way. And then I'd be confused why he was grumpy with me. And now we just say like, Hey, I'm having a bad day. It has nothing to do with you. So I just don't want you to worry if I'm seen like a little down or a little distant. And just saying that just acknowledging that, just smooth every interaction after that. And the same goes in the workplace. I think really great managers are able to have some level of emotional expression where they say, you know, there's a lot going on. We're all stressed. Here's how we're going to get through it. But just want you to know, like, if my email's seem curt, I'm not upset with you. I just have a lot going on and I'm responding quickly.
0: That's great. and And that does kind of lend itself towards what you were talking about, where this subject has been brought up in the past but only in kind of compartments and in the vein of, say, leadership. And that's a great way to have it be done in a leadership role, to be that kind of morale barometer.
1: We talk a lot about leadership. We talk a lot about selective vulnerability. Um, And I think this can apply. One other thing, too, is that I think when people think about leadership, they think about a CEO or just someone who's managing 200 people. But even if you're an individual contributor, you can be a leader within a meeting, you can be a leader and set an example for what it's like to ask really thoughtful questions, to not interrupt others, to positively reinforce when someone is willing to take the risk and and admit that they made a mistake and ask for help. Those are all super, super important to teams doing well. So again, backing out of that, I want to say, like, for us, leadership is really just setting an example for other people. And that applies to any job and any role. Um, But what's really important in the workplace is displaying some level of selective vulnerability. And so that is, when you're feeling something, you should admit some of that. Um, We're really good at picking up on how other people are feeling. So if you've ever been sitting next to someone, and they're extremely stressed, they don't have to say anything to you. But I'm betting that you've like picked up on that um they're like hunched over their computer they're frantically typing maybe their leg is jiggling there are just a lot of cues about how we feel that are not verbal and so if a leader or any employee doesn't say anything when they're visibly stressed we don't trust them anymore because it's like there's clearly this world within you that's going on that you're not letting me see and so now i think you're just like presenting something to me and i just that's just marketing and i don't trust it but you have to walk the line in the workplace between you can't just be like, I'm freaking out, I'm so overwhelmed, because that's going to undermine how people see you, and they're not going to trust that you can get the job done. So, you, so we encourage people to admit how they're feeling, but then always provide a path forward or talk about like how they're working to address the need behind that feeling. So if you're anxious about not meeting a project deadline, you might say, What lot going on, I'm feeling stressed. But I have a plan in place for how we're going to meet the deadline. I feel really good about that. This is a finite period, and we're all going to get through it.
0: Yeah. And, and in, just in that same way, in, in that example there where you're talking about you know, if somebody is near you, uh, depending upon how many other people are around, those subconscious signals that they're sending off, uh, especially if they're not talking about their current state, might start to be interpreted uh, by you as being about you.
1: When we get, so say for an example, you get an email from your boss that just says, hey, I'd like to talk about the project that you put together. I think we have a tendency as human beings to catastrophize or to ruminate or just to somehow always pick up on the most threatening thing. And so if it's just this vague, like, I want to talk to you about something I have definitely gone immediately to like, oh my God, I really messed this project up. I'm going to get fired. This is a horrible situation. And it might just be that there were minor edits and overall they thought that it was, I did a great job. So when you're emailing people, especially digital communication, where they're not able to pick up on tone or body language, it's really important to emotionally proofread what you write. Um, So we advise, write the email and then take a step back and really try and look at it through the recipient's eyes. And so instead of saying, I want to talk to you about this project, you might say, hey, you did a really great job. I have some minor edits. Can we discuss? And the person getting that is not going to freak out in the way they are if it's just like a really vague blanket statement. So even though your intentions are obvious to you, they're often not obvious whatsoever to the person reading the note that you wrote.
0: Yeah, I've done some reading on email lately, uh, but not just email, but, um, you know, digital communication and this, this definitely reinforces that there's this kind of, I forget what it's called and you may know it. There's this kind of rule of the further away from face to face communication that you get, which email when it's literally just text on a page, uh, and this applies for texting too, by the way, um, that it's kind of like, I think it's called a negativity bias that as you start removing the, um, what is it called? the physical cues, the um, like uh,
1: any yeah. nonverbal gestures yes. or or signals? yeah, so we we really encourage people, especially when you're first starting to work together, to use richer communication channels. So even if you're remote, um, default to video, it's just so useful to be able to see someone when you're talking to them and we have so much more negativity bias when we don't know someone personally. So like if you're talk if you're emailing with your mom, let's say, you're usually not going to get upset about something if you have a really solid like I don't know, 40 years <laughs> relationship with her and you really know like all of her how her communication, you know, signals and like how she writes emails. If you're just starting to work with someone and they write something really curt, you're probably going to, that's the only thing you know about them. And so you're really going to read into that short message. Um, so we always say, start with video, um, start with phone, just anything that's not just digital. And then as you get to know each other better, then you can rely more and more on just on email.
0: Yeah. I think that's a great idea. I, you know, uh, that's one of the things that with, with my team, like uh, certain people, Yeah, like, we've got a history, so we're good. But Mm -hmm. others, it's like, hey, could we do this meeting on video, please? (laughs) I know you want to sit there and also, like, have your head down and, like, look something else over. But, like, that also (laughs) – or not show that you're not really present. But (laughs) – you yeah. really kind of all need to be, you know, on the same page and and things like that. And and you know, voice is fine, but like video is so, vi- again, video you can see the visual cues, the the body language. That's what I was that's the phrase I was looking for earlier, body language. Um it's a language it speaks. Yeah. It's just it's it's just funny cuz like on top of everything else, uh in in fact, email um is is a great example. It's a perfect example of this almost sterile work environment but in a digital placement, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like walking into the office, but it, where you're expecting no emotion to be because we've made it that way for so long. Uh, it's kind of like that, that digital parallel.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I think email is such a place that we don't think about emotion or cause, and, and I think you, when you're emailing, you're also in this mindset of like, I just want to get through my inbox and get to inbox zero And so it feels just about efficiency. And in that, there's so many opportunities for miscommunication. So one example is Molly, my co-author and I, we would each take a stab at a chapter draft and then we would swap it. And I, when she would email me something, I always felt like I want to get back to her. I felt the sense of urgency. And so I would just hammer out a bullet point list of all the edits and all the changes I thought need to be made to the draft and how I was going to tackle those and how she could help. And I thought I was just being like a really efficient, amazing colleague to her. And then after a while, she called me and she was like, you know, the emails you send me actually make me feel really bad because I spend all this time on a draft and send it to you. And then I just get back this wall of text of things you need to change. And I just want you to like, thank me for starting the draft. <laughs> and to me, that was so obvious when she said it. And like, I'm, like, I wouldn't have given her all that feedback if I didn't think it was good and like worth really diving into, but I never said that. And so I think it's a great example of like, if you're just focused on efficiency and you don't ever take the time to step back and talk through like how things might be making people feel, even if it's completely unintentional and you have really good, like a good reason for doing what you're doing you just risk alienating your teammates. And I think then any collaboration is just going to fall apart. So now I still do the immediate, like here are the bullet point lists, but then I've started stepping back and I do this for every email and then really being explicit about like, okay, what's missing from this email? And what's missing is like all this stuff in my head about, thank you, here are the parts that I really liked. And you could argue that adding that in, like taking an extra five minutes is bad for productivity because I'm just wasting time writing useless words, but they're not useless. They like really bond you to someone else and are so important for motivation for ultimately like just the, the cohesion of the group.
0: I think that the example that you just gave is a perfect example that illustrates the fact that there is no unemotional decision or interaction in the workplace. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's exactly one of those th- – again, this is one of those things that you probably hear and people have heard probably in some leadership book somewhere where you want to make sure that some – before you give cr- critical, which again, critical being um feedback that's – going to help the project or whatever it is, whatever the work that was done that it's going to improve that work and so but keeping in mind that it was a human <laughs> that yeah. did that work <laughs> and they yeah. will have thoughts and feelings especially feelings as we're talking about in this conversation about that work they did and if you skirt over to just saying fix this then yeah. it suddenly discounts the work that they did and yeah, that's just completely. not good leadership
1: I mean, I think another thing that that we're just not trained enough in how to do is even to, when you're writing this negative feedback, even if you put really great stuff around it, like how should you even phrase the negative feedback? And one of the things that we stress so much is be specific. Um, The feedback that really hurts is the feedback where it's hard to act on it. And so, for example, if I say to you, hey, the presentation that you gave Your comments just really missed the mark. Uh, I think you have room for improvement. That's just not really useful. And you're just going to sit, like, I don't think there's anything you can do with that besides sit with it and become really anxious. Like, what does it mean that my comments missed the mark? Was it the slideshow? Was it my gestures? Was it like, was I just not smart enough? Um, And so it really starts to feel like a criticism of your entire sense of self, as opposed to if I had said to you, Hey, slides three and four really seem tangential. cut them makes for a much stronger presentation that's so much better it's it's much harder for you to become anxious about that like you might think oh i could have done a better job but you're not going to sit there and just like think on this forever and ever because i made it really clear what you needed to work on
0: I've always heard that it's great to first start off by acknowledging and even praising if that's possible. I mean, if it's a, if what they turned in is really horrible, that's, <laughs> that's really difficult to do. Uh, yeah. but you can still get there. I think you can say something along the lines of, uh, gosh, I'm going to have to make this up. Something along the lines of saying, I can see that you put a lot of effort into this. Thank you so much for working on this. Here's a couple of edits. Yeah, uh, I, And again, even there, it already turned negative real quick
1: <laughs> yeah, for, the, mean, think, for
0: the recipient.
1: Yeah, but I think one thing that helps a lot is su- when you suggest a different way of doing things, explaining how it will benefit the person and then also saying that, like, I'm really confident that you can get here and I'm giving you this feedback because I know that you have the ability to make these changes and turn this into a really great thing. So we interviewed Wharton Professor Cade Massey. And he always recommends positioning critical feedback as bridging the gap. So identify where you want the person to be, tell them how to get there, and then really emphasize that you you think they have the ability to bridge that gap. Um, And so one thing, because you talked about how to even introduce the critical feedback, one piece of advice we give too is to start out by saying, I'm giving you these comments because I have very high expectations of you and I'm confident that you can reach them. And that already sets it up as like, I'm here to mentor you and to help you not to tear you down.
0: I think ultimately, one of the biggest things I took away from the book was just the fact that us getting to this point of one, acknowledging that emotions exist in the workplace, like, and and not, you know, again, acting like we're robots, but then two, leaning into learning to understand them and then appropriately express them.
1: Yeah, I find it really fascinating to look at emotions in the context of decision making, because I think this is an area where there is a lot of conflicting advice. You have some people that say, always listen to your gut, and some people that say you should never rely on your gut. And researchers have actually found that the people who make the best decisions, so they looked at day traders who were deciding whether or not to buy or sell a stock, the ones that had the best performance were those that acknowledged everything they were feeling but didn't necessarily act on all those feelings. And so the reason that's so important is because we have what psychologists call relevant and irrelevant feelings. And so an irrelevant feeling is I'm stuck in traffic for two hours and I'm really upset. When I get to the office, I'm just grumpy and I shouldn't necessarily let that affect how I give feedback, how I see a report. But if I don't acknowledge, if I don't just stand there and say, okay, I'm upset. It's because I sat in traffic if I don't understand what's driving that, I'm just going to let it color everything I do for the rest of the day and I'm going to make worse decisions. I'm going to be rude to my colleagues. Um, An important emotion when you're just making a decision is if you're choosing between two options and the thought of not choosing option B fills you with regret, that's actually a really useful signal because there's something about option B that is appealing enough to you that you do have some kind of compulsion to pick it. And so that is not an emotion you should ignore. But if you don't, first, if you don't even accept that you're going to feel different things, you're not able to list everything out and then filter through it. And again, put aside what's not useful to you and what you shouldn't let like stick. It's kind of tricky tentacles into your decision-making. And then look through what is useful and let that like guide along with, you know, analysis and maybe a pro and cons list, but letting regret, for example, be part of that pros and cons list.
0: So what would you say to somebody who, because I've, I've heard a leader say this, I've heard someone say that um, making decisions by emotion only, or a better way to put it is you have an emotional response to a decision that needs to be made. And then you go about finding factual uh, analysis or data to back up your emotional decision uh saying that that's the wrong way that in fact you should go by the data the data doesn't lie
1: yeah so (laughs) i think this is probably something a lot of people ask and i would say you should treat them semi-separately so there's one which is so there's also some emotions can be useful signals in that they're just based on like you have faced the situations situation so many times that you do have like an instinctual reaction. And that's just training. That's just like, you've been here, you've chosen the right thing many times. So you just instinctually know what that right thing is. I'm not endorsing that you like immediately pick that right thing. I think it is still really important to look at the data to understand what the numbers are telling you to like, take into account the entire world that might be affected by this decision. But not to ignore what you're feeling in that moment. So if it is like, oh, I have this kind of compulsion to pick this thing, let me sit back and let me see, like, is it because I'm mad and I just want to show people that I can do this? That's a horrible reason. And so that compulsion, born out of anger, not useful, and I should not listen to it. If I feel kind of instinctively drawn to a choice because it seems like a situation I've faced many, many times before, and when I've made that choice, it has had a good result, then it's something that I should factor into the decision. But I don't think it should ever be like fully based on your emotions. It's more on just seeing them as like these little additional data points that you can either discard or factor into the analysis.
0: Gotcha. I think the reason why uh, usually that it's bad advice to just be like it, or why people came up with that advice in the first place was basically the scenario would go like this. Someone would say, I feel we should do this. And here's a bunch of reasons why that I looked up. And, right. and that's not a great decision-making process, but that discounts the feelings altogether. It discounts the emotions altogether. And what really you're saying is, again, that's the error of discounting that emotion takes place or sorry, that that emotion has a factoring into the decision-making process at all. And really, it's not just about the, what am I feeling? and being aware of that, but it's then the why behind that, that that might actually dig up even better information to make the decision with.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you should never start with a feeling and then come up with data to back it. I think like, again, the feeling should just be part of the data. And I would also advise that in a work context, you should factor in how you're feeling. um, But it might not always be the best thing to like use that as part of your argument even if it's like a valuable thing to evaluate. Um, So yeah, I think this is, again, it's all, I would say it's just more data that should be considered with all the other data. It should never be like leading the data or more important than the data or completely ignored.
0: I wonder if you have any kind of insight then as far as from a macro level, uh, (laughs) someone who reads the book but isn't in charge necessarily in higher cultural decision-making processes in their their organization. Like they're like, oh, this book is addressing exactly what the problem is where I work. But they don't feel like they have the power to like enact change towards making things more healthy in that workplace. They're more of yeah. like a they're almost like okay, now I know how to drive correctly myself. I'm a defensive driver, but all these other people are swerving all over the road. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah we, we get this a lot. Um, and I think people do feel powerless in those situations, but they're really not. So a new, uh, a new concept that's come up recently in the literature is this idea of emotional cultures. And it's not a new concept in the world. It's just like only been studied in the past few years. But it's different. So a company culture in, tech, in the tech world is often like, move fast and break things. And that's the directive of like, we're just going to put stuff out and see what happens. But an emotional culture is formed by all the tiny little actions and gestures that signal how we're allowed to feel in a workplace. And one of the best examples, or one of the best questions to ask to kind of figure out what the emotional culture at your organization is, is what is something that would only happen here? So one example, I mean, this is a pretty crazy one, but it's from a startup that I was at recently. And they, on Fridays, they all get to buy, so when, they, when you start, you get to pick a onesie, so like a full pajama outfit. <laughs> and then one Friday a month, they have a little happy hour where everyone wears their onesie. And it's really about like allowing employees to be goofy with each other and step out of their shells. Um, and so I think that's a great example of like, The emotional culture there is about expression and about bringing your authentic self to work. Now, of course, if you work at like JP Morgan, that's probably not happening. (laughs) People (laughs) would probably be like horrified if you showed up on any day of work in a onesie. Um, But if you're in that situation and you do want to start making small changes to your organization, that's entirely within your control. And so those are called micro actions. And these are small things that actually have big reverberations So for example, let's say that I want to make my team just a little more compassionate or make it okay to express kindness. If you do something nice for me, let's say you bring me a coffee from Starbucks instead of just being like, okay, great. I can, I can positively reinforce that openly and say like, thank you. I really appreciate this. And then I can do something for you the next day. And those are these little things that again, stick out in people's minds. Um, another great one that I come across so frequently is just knowing how to pronounce and spell people's names. Um, My name is Elizabeth with an S instead of a Z, so L-I-A-S. And so many times people email me and they just change it to Elizabeth with a Z. And it's not a really big deal, but it does signal like you didn't take the tiny split second to look how to spell my name. Um, And so I think just modeling that for other people, like always making sure that you are asking like, how do you pronounce that? Um, How do you spell that? And then making sure to spell it correctly. I think these are small actions, again, that do have a really big difference in making people feel like you care about them. And then usually people respond in kind. Um, So I would just encourage people not to lose hope and to realize that because emotions are contagious, because we do pick up so strongly on what someone is feeling, if you're just modeling kindness and you're not always stressed, and you're really trying to make other people feel included, people are going to pick up on that. And that will change, maybe in a small way, maybe just for the two people sitting around you, but it will change the environment in that group.
0: Okay, so number 1, you're making me feel really good cuz I asked you how you pronounce your name and stuff. I know,
1: I love this. So prior nice.
0: to the recording, so that was awesome <laughs> uh, cuz I did notice the s in Elizabeth, but my wife's name is Elizabeth, but it's with a z, and I've known somebody in the past in college who uh, it was Elizabeth, well it was Elisabeth actually cuz it was oh, an s. So yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think to ask that part because I saw that you went by Liz. So that was great. But it was your last name that I wanted to pronounce. But anyway, I feel really good that I actually went there and did that. So
1: yeah. And I job. thought I really appreciated that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Yeah, I, I think that you're exactly right. It's one of those things where it's difficult to kind of accept that we're kind of working from a consistent micro. What was it again? Micro actions.
1: Micro actions. Yeah. The small gestures that actually communicate a lot.
0: I think we underestimate the power of those. But I I think that that I think that it can feel because I've been in offices where stuff gets stuff just overall gets squelched. Uh, overall, not, not that buying somebody a coffee is just like, that's unacceptable. You can't even do that. No, that there's no rule. uh, I I hope there's no workplace out there that says that's not a, that that's a rule. You can't buy a coworker a coffee, but it's those kinds of powerful micro actions and and the gestures that, that change things in non, gosh, you know, non changing the rules way, but like in a collective morale way to where things start to get better.
1: So much of it, I think just comes down to positive reinforcement too. So I think, you know, if if you're in a group, and you see an, an issue with an idea that someone throws out, it can be really scary to stand up and say, actually, we're all excited about this, but I just want to flag a problem. And yet, it's so important to the team's success that people feel comfortable enough to speak out and flag those problems. Otherwise, you're, you're going to have huge blind spots. And so if I see someone, and especially if I see that they're kind of nervous or their voice is a little shaky when they say, hey, I actually, I don't know that that's going to work. Something that I can do is say like, thank you for bringing that up. I really appreciate it. Super small action But that that makes them feel better and also indicates to other people, like, this is the behavior that we want and we want to encourage. Um, I want to go back just because I think this is such a beautiful example of how small things can make a difference too, is again, going back to just knowing how to pronounce people's names. We talked to an executive and he always made it a point to, in a meeting, address people by their first name. So he would say, hi, Eric, like, how are you? Or or John, what's your opinion? Or Kelly, um, do you have any thoughts on this? And about two months after a new designer started, who was in many of his meetings, she came up to him after a meeting. And she was like, I think you don't know how to pronounce my name. And it's Karishma. And I just wanted you to, to let you know that because you have been addressing everyone else by their first name, but not me. And so, his intention was not to mispronounce her name and not to embarrass her or embarrass himself. And yet by not like making that tiny little action of how do I pronounce your name? He ended up making her feel really excluded. Because imagine if I spoke to everyone by their name and never addressed you by your first name, that would send a message about how I value you and how I want to bring you into the conversation. And again, I love this example because No one in this situation had bad intentions and it was this really small thing, but it had a huge effect on how she felt about him and about the team and about her role within the organization.
0: Wow. And it's such a small oversight with such a big impact because even if he didn't want to do it publicly by accident or even publicly say, oh, I'm sorry, how do you pronounce your name? He could have easily just after the meeting was over at, at any one of them. Uh, when aside and said, hey, how do you pronounce your name?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I've, so this happens to me in networking situations where I'm an introvert and so often, especially when I'm just meeting someone, so I can tend to get in my head about the introduction. And so I'll be so focused on like, smile, make eye contact, like be warm, that I miss when they say their name. Um, and I used to be really embarrassed about that. And what would happen is that I would have an amazing interaction with someone and I wouldn't know their name. So I couldn't look them up afterwards. Or I just would be feel weird about like introducing them to someone else because it would become obvious that I didn't know what their name was. And so now I just say like, hey, I missed it. I'm sorry. Can you remind me of your name again? And like, think about if you like someone, but you can never follow up with them, what you might be missing out on again, because of this one small thing you're afraid to address.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's overall kind of, the theme or message of the book really is there's so many, again, just unwritten rules and expectations, and we're out there navigating them with only half of ourselves.
1: Yeah, definitely. And navigating them with half of ourselves, but also with absolutely no guidebook for what to do. Yes. Um, you know, when you started an organization, You get trained on so much. You get trained on how to use whatever portal they're using on. I think there's even kind of implicit lessons around like, what are the norms around email? Are we going to email after, after work hours? Do I have to respond on the weekends? Like these are all things that you pick up on. Um, Sometimes they're made explicit, but we're really never, there's no training course on like how to give feedback or you're having an issue with a coworker. Here's how to have a difficult conversation. Here's how to get curious as opposed to start blaming other people. Um, and these are things that, you know, are so crucial to being part of an organization and, and just being successful. Like emotional intelligence is over and over one of the things that is most correlated with success.
0: It's a good thing you guys wrote this book. This is that missing manual for <laughs> operating <laughs> in the workplace. And I love it. Like, I, I really think that a lot of organizations and teams really need to get this and go through it, uh, not only as individuals, but as teams and say, hey, even if we can't change every other department in the organization, how can we be healthy for each other and to each other. And it's it's a great book. Oh, I got to mention the fact that I said this pre-recording, but I love that this book has all these great uh, cartoons that really do a great job of illustrating on an emotional level, I might add, uh, the, the message of uh, and all the lessons of the book. So great job.
1: Thanks. Yeah. The cartoons are really meant, I mean, both some of them kind of illustrate some of the research or, or differences in how different people's brains might work. Um, but they're really intended to help people just see their emotional life with more affection. Um, it doesn't have to be the scary thing. I think a lot of people don't even know how to start thinking about emotions, let alone like start talking about them with their team. Um, and going back to, you mentioned that it's really important for teams to do this. That doesn't have to be a scary thing. you know. Like, I think if you just start the meeting off with like, oh, here's some fun cartoons. Maybe let's discuss the one about teamwork Um, or, you know, like we also have in the book uh, just a few questions so that you can go through with your team. You just set aside half an hour and say, how do you work with me? Like, what norms do we want to have around communication? And again, it doesn't require that much time, doesn't have to be scary. I think it's great to inject any conversation about this kind of stuff with some humor. And we hope the book does that. On a broader scale, which is just like it's accessible, it's engaging. Just really start listening to your emotional self.
0: That is, I think, what ultimately the lesson. Aside from all the other ones, uh, the main lesson for me was: wait a second, there is. I- I'm a multi dimensional human being, <laughs> yeah. and to only, <laughs> you know, be acting or deciding out of one or two dimensions of myself instead of fully bringing myself to bear to my work problems or my work, uh, successes. Uh, I am really sort short. I am really short changing myself and that's not fair to me or those I work with. So,
1: yeah. 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 And also, you know, there's research that shows that the people who feel the worst when I have a negative emotion are those that beat themselves up for it. And so I think if you think you're the only one that's feeling anxious at work, you might start to get into a spiral where you're like, I'm anxious that I'm anxious. I'm depressed because I'm an anxious person person, and I'm the only one that feels like this. As opposed to if you're like, I'm having a bad day, I'm on a stressful project, it's okay. Other people feel like this too. You just move on much faster.
0: Yes, agreed. Well, I want everybody to be able to go check out the book. So let's uh, let's tell everybody where they can go to find out more. And uh, yeah, I, I just think this is this is going to be really helpful to a lot of people.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, so you can go to our website, Liz and Molly, and that's L-I-Z and the word, and then M-O-L-L-I-E. So Molly and I both have little alternative <laughs> spellings of our name. <laughs> Um, and there we have a newsletter we send out every month. Um, we also post new comics on Instagram, which you can find on the website. And then the book is just available for pre-order on Amazon, um, at Barnes and Nobles, kind of at your independent bookstore as well.
0: Great. And I'll link, I'll link those all up in the show notes for this episode. And Liz, it was great talking with you. I can't wait to have this get into the people's hands and start making, uh, lots of impact.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. This was really fun. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, that's it. Another episode in the can. Do you carry around a can to hold your podcasts in? Because that just makes absolutely no sense. But I hope that you got something out of this. I hope that you reconsidered the place that emotions have in our lives and in our workplaces and reconsidered some of those unwritten rules in your company's culture, whether you're part of a big company or a small team, or a solo person who interacts with a lot of other people, is solopreneur, as they call it, emotions matter. They're part of you. They actually can help you. You can lean in on those as well as your analysis and your thinker brain. They're not in contradiction. But I want to know what you think. So... Head on over to beyondthetodolist.com slash 257. There you'll find the show notes. You can let me know in the comments what you thought of this episode. You'll also find links to everything we mentioned in this conversation. You can find the links to the book, No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotions at Work. You'll find the links to Liz Fosline and Molly West Duffy's website. The book is about to come out. By the time you're listening to this, it is probably released or is just crossing over from pre-order status to delivery status. I really enjoyed this. I really, I mean, I try to have. As many unique approaches to work and productivity on this show as I possibly can. This is definitely one of them. So, if you enjoyed this conversation and you know of somebody else who needs to hear this because it's a fresh perspective on productivity and work, I would love for you to share it. Again, you can find the show notes at beyond the to do two five seven. While you're there, you can hit the share button to share that with somebody and let them know about this. I would love it if you would. And until next episode, I'll say again, thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. Lots of cool, fun things coming up. Great conversations. Again, in the can. I'll pull them out of my can. I'll send them over to your can. And with that, I'll see you next episode.